All right, y'all. Well, I get to bring you all the word today. I'm very excited about it. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verse 24 through 29 in a second. But while you're, while you're flipping there, I want to start with a question. Have you guys ever come across uh, a challenge to a core belief that you have? Maybe you walk around in this world and you assume X and you don't even consider Y and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's a Y and someone out there believes it and I had no idea. I'll give you an example of this. I didn't know until a few years ago that there were people still in the 21st century that believe that the earth is flat. It's a thing. There might be a couple in this room, so I'm going to be real careful <laughs> to my brothers and sisters in Christ not to bruise your ego, but i got to tell you right off the bat you're wrong. But I will say this. I didn't really have a great argument for why you were wrong because I was brought up in school. That's just what you're told. The earth is round. Galileo figured it out forever ago, right? Um, but this was an example of something that I just took for granted. I took this as basic truth. Then you're challenged with it, and you got two options. Either you look at the evidence for this other argument, and it's correct, and you change your belief, or you figure out how to defend your belief a little bit. Um, this is something that we do quite a bit. In fact, the funniest thing about this is the day that I realized that flat earthers existed in the world was, uh, I remember the date. It was August 21st, 2017. I know that that was the date because I was sitting in a car waiting to watch the solar eclipse in Oregon. We had driven up to Oregon, we were there with my in-laws, and we had uh, actually gone to the exact spot where you could stand when the solar eclipse was going to happen. You didn't have to wear any kind of sunglasses or anything. Well, I don't think you're supposed to look at the sun with sunglasses on anyways. But with the eclipse, we were in the right spot. So we're sitting there waiting for this event, and that's when I'm in the back seat of Mike Brody's truck, and I'm just like looking at flatearth.org or whatever their website is, going like, what do these people believe? What's going on? I didn't know this was like still a dispute. But the funniest thing is that I'm sitting there waiting for an eclipse, and they know the exact hour, down to the minute, they told us when the eclipse would happen, that's when it happened. And all of that is based on the science of around Earth, around Sun, around Moon, this whole model that we were all brought up in school. There's a reason that we hold firm to this belief that the Earth is round, that we know that. So all that to say, I've kind of dove deep into some flat Earth stuff now, a lot of like YouTube videos, figuring out what they believe and, and, and how easy it is to debunk it, I'll be honest. Um, so I know how to defend my belief in the round earth a little bit better now. Sometimes this happens to us in scripture, and we're going to see this a little bit today, is we have core beliefs uh, that we've been told all our lives, and most of them are from scripture. If you have a core Christian doctrine that every Bible-believing church has, it does come from scripture. But there might be time when you can read a scripture out of context and think, oh, is the Bible actually contradicting my belief here? And you have to be able to figure out what the passage is saying, you have to be able to figure out uh, why you have that core belief. And we have to be able to take Scripture in its full context. So again, we're in John chapter 5. If you're with us new today, we've been going through a series through the book of John. And we're actually jumping ahead a little bit. The last time Pastor Steve preached from the book of John, we were at the end of chapter 4. We're kind of jumping into the middle of chapter 5, so we're skipping over some stuff. So I want to set the context as we start uh, in verse 24. So what's happened in the beginning half of 25 is Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath. There's a man that was um, lame by the pool. Jesus healed him, but it's a Sabbath. So the religious leaders who hate Jesus, and he's a threat to their status, they come to him and they say, how, how do you have the right to heal on the Sabbath? Who, who does this? And Jesus' answer is honestly really simple. He goes, yeah, I do have the right. <laughs> and he starts making these bold claims about himself, and we're going to kind of jump into the middle of this speech he's giving to these religious leaders. But some of the bold claims that he's given already up to this point are that he and the Father are one, and that the Sabbath was made for him. So, 
There's some bold claims already. And then we jump into John 24 through 29. We have six verses today, and he's making some radical claims here. Let's read this passage together. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So these are some radical claims Jesus is making. Not only is he saying, I can heal on the Sabbath, the Father and I are one. Even the Pharisees in the previous passage are are calling out the fact that he's claiming to be equal with God. But here, he goes even further to say that if you hear his word and believe, you get eternal life. So there's actually three big claims that are, are kind of strewn throughout this passage, and I want to focus on these three. The first one is that Jesus himself brings life. So let's read uh, 24 and 25 again. I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is the gospel summarized. This is up there with John 3.16, right? How simple is that? If you hear and believe, you pass from death to life. And I want to make something clear here in these verses, as opposed to later on in our passage. He's speaking of spiritual death. The reason we know he's speaking of spiritual death is because here in verse 25, he says an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear and those who hear will live. In verse 24, it's also an instantaneous promise. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is present tense language. And we know based on the whole context of scripture that he's talking about spiritual death and spiritual life. This is what he's bringing. But if you were to focus on just this passage and take it out of context, you might miss some of the distinction there because later he's going to start talking about physical resurrection. But I want to stop and talk about what it means that Jesus is claiming that he brings life here and now. Even in your spiritual death, we are dead in our sin, Paul says, that if you hear the the words of Jesus and believe him who has sent me, you have eternal life. You have been brought to life. John's gospel is focused on Jesus as the life bringer more than any other gospel. We have four gospel accounts. They're each different in their approach. They're ultimately trying to get you to the same point of seeing Jesus for who he is and making a conclusion about him. But John tells us why he wrote this book. And Pastor Steve called this out in our very first message on John. The last verse of his book says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's whole goal in writing his gospel, so that you know Jesus because he knows Jesus brings life. And Jesus is claiming that right here in John chapter 5. But across John's gospel, he harps on Jesus as the bringer of life over and over again. There are 32 verses referencing Jesus having life in himself or giving life across John's gospel. He uses the word life just by itself. He uses the word life more than any other gospel writer. And he's trying to, it's like he's hitting us over the head with that. After our resurrection, but it's for the here 
and now. An hour is coming and is now here. If you are dead in your sin and you hear the gospel, the story of the cross, and you respond to it and you put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus, you are brought from death to life here and now. Paul says you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. So in this passage, that's our first big claim that Jesus is making. The second is this. So the first is Jesus brings life. The second is Jesus has authority. Let's read verse 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So these two verses together, Jesus is making a claim of authority, both over life, that he has that power from the Father to bring life, and that he has the authority to execute judgment. And here in verse 27, there's a really important word. If you have your Bible in front of you, underline the word and. And this this word actually helps shed a lot of light on this passage because you can read verse 24 and this promise of passing from death to eternal life now, and then you could get down to 29 where it talks about good behavior and evil behavior and get a little uncomfortable. So the word and is super important here. This is a transition. We're no longer talking about spiritual death and spiritual resurrection Now he's going to shift. When he talks about judgment, he's talking about a future day where you'll experience bodily resurrection and you have one of two outcomes. So here, in in verse 26, he says, the Son of God has been granted to also have life in himself. But then in 27, he says that he has authority to execute judgment because he, Jesus, is the Son of Man. So this is another outrageous claim. And this is his appeal to the authority over judgment. Because we have two titles, Son of God, Son of Man. This might be confusing for some. Son of God is a, a, a trinity title. It's, it's his oneness with the Father, that he is God the Son. But Son of Man is a, a key title that, that these religious leaders would have known very well. He's hearkening back to Daniel chapter 7. And in, in Daniel 7, Daniel receives a vision from the Lord of final judgment. He sees four beasts that are trampling the earth, and these beasts represent different kingdoms of man that are oppressing the people. And Daniel's watching this, and he's outraged by it, and he wants God to do something about it. And then he sees the Ancient of Days up in the heavens, and there's a courtroom scene. There are books open. There are thrones up above. And then he sees, it says, one who is like a son of man, ascending to where the Father is. And this title in Daniel would just mean a human one. But because this is such a sought-after and studied passage of prophecy in Jesus' time, when he says, I am the Son of Man, they would know that he's referring to this claim, that he is the human one that will ascend and execute judgment on the evil in this world. So when he says he has authority, that he is the Son of Man, this is an insane claim. This would have riled the Pharisees up just as much as Jesus saying that he is one with the Father. So, Again, three claims that Jesus is making in this passage. Number one, Jesus brings life. Number two, Jesus has authority. He has authority over life and over judgment. And then Jesus starts talking about what that judgment looks like. And the third claim is this. Jesus is just. Let's read verse 28 and 29 again. Do not marvel at this. He just claimed to be the Son of Man. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who do those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So once again, we've transitioned 
Now he's talking about a future bodily resurrection. How do we know it's future? Because here he says a time is coming. Before he said a time is coming and now is. There's the, the now and not yet of our eternal life that, that's been granted to us when we believe in the name of Jesus. But now we're talking specifically about physical resurrection. He says there will be a day when everyone in their tomb will come out. Every human who has ever lived will experience bodily resurrection. But you either experience a resurrection to life or a resurrection to judgment. And here, Jesus is depicting himself as the Son of Man, as the just judge. So, if I took you out of Christianity for a second, and I put a judge in a courtroom, and I said, this judge will either judge you based on good behavior or evil behavior, we would all nod our heads and say yes. But as a Christian, when I think about Jesus, the just judge, judging me based on what I have done, it says, who have done good and who have done evil, I get very uncomfortable. Why? Because we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We know this, church, and I want you guys to hear it today. This passage, when you first read it, might challenge that belief that we are saved by grace through faith. Wait, is Jesus actually saying here it's works-based salvation? The answer, first off, just within this passage, is absolutely no. He already said in verse 24, if you hear my word and believe me, uh, him who sent me, you have eternal life. That is the promise from God. So we have salvation by grace through faith in verse 24. And then we get to 29, and now he's talking about your judge based on whether you've done good or done evil. So what's going on here? I want to dig into it, but first I want to call one other thing out. In verse 28, he says, do not marvel at this. He's speaking to religious leaders. There would have been a mix of Pharisees and Sadducees. There are two main sects in the religious elite at that time. The Pharisees, they, they would differ on, on quite a few issues, but one of the big ones is that the Pharisees believed there would be a future resurrection in the same way that we talk about one day being with Jesus in heaven. They would believe that their body would be resurrected, there would be some final judgment. The Sadducees rejected this belief. They thought the grave was the grave, you're dead, that's it. So here, I think he's speaking a little bit to the Sadducees here of, you guys, if you say you know my word, you should get this, that there is going to be a resurrection. And I'll be honest, in reading the Old Testament, you don't get a lot of go to heaven when you die kind of language. But I was encouraged this week, blown away, in fact, to, to look at some passages from the Old Testament that hint towards this final resurrection that we might read of in something like Revelation in the New Testament. Let me read Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This, this blew me away. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is on the scene, and we're seeing the same sermon being preached in Daniel that he's preaching to these religious elite now, that there will be a day where we all experience resurrection, some to judgment, some to life. So is it works or is it faith? Again, we know based on verse 24, that's, that's not what Jesus is getting at here. You're not saved by good works. So why does he say it this way? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, first, I would just like to say, all of us have done evil. Yeah? So again, let's take this in context with what we know to be true about Christ, what we know about the cross. He is 
the just judge. But can someone who's never been saved do good? I think that's the question. I think this is the fundamental problem is that what can Jesus judge the unbeliever by? You can't judge them on faith. They don't have faith. You can judge them by their works. And notice that those who have done good don't experience judgment. If someone was good enough, there would be no distinction between life and judgment in this passage. If you could go through life, get to Jesus the just judge at the end of it all, and say, I was good enough, then you're not afraid of judgment, right? There is a distinction here between judgment and life. We bypass judgment as the believer. Isn't that good? So, here's what it is. Here's the justice of Jesus in this passage, is that he knows, as he's speaking these words, and we know, that he's destined for the cross. That his main goal in his ministry on this earth is to die for the sins of the earth. So, though he is the just judge, executing judgment at that final day, he has paid the penalty for our sin. And he knows that's where he's going. See, I've talked to unbelievers or skeptics who will ask this question. They'll say, if God is so loving, then why did he have to pour out his own punishment on himself on a cross? Why not just forgive? If he's that loving, he could just forgive. But a God who does that is not a just God. In the cross, Jesus' death, we have perfect justice and perfect grace. Perfect justice because all the wrath of God the Father was poured out on God the Son, and all the grace because it's not us on that cross. Without the cross, you have a God who is gracious but not just, or just but not gracious. And we don't want either. God is perfectly just because he's the righteous judge, but he's already paid the price for our sin. So those that experience judgment at that final day, it's only because they've rejected Christ. And they didn't have to. He paid the penalty for all of our sin. So once again, we are saved by grace through faith. I want everyone to hear that today. We have these three radical claims that Christ has made about himself, that he brings life, that he has authority, and that he's just. We see that in the cross. So what is our response to these revelations? It's this. It's a one-point application. We define life as Christ. John is trying to get us to see it over and over in his gospel, that the ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection, is so we can experience life, but that life is only found in Christ. Paul beats you over the head with it in Colossians 3. I'd like to read this. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is our very life. He is the only one that brings that life. His cross is the only mechanism by which we could experience life. You know what happens when we go out and try to find life in other things? Have, has anyone ever slidden back into believing? Maybe, maybe not consciously. Have you ever camped out in works-based salvation? That is a dangerous place to be. 
It is only by his cross that we are saved. Not by our works, so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, there is a, um, there's two thieves next to him. And in Matthew's gospel, we hear that both thieves mock Jesus. In Luke's gospel, we get a scene where one thief is mocking Jesus and the other speaks up on Jesus' behalf. So something has happened in this thief's time on the cross. He must have seen Christ forgive those that were killing him. Something is to think about that. But I want to I close with this. This is our, our main point. In response to what Jesus is saying about our eternal destiny, both in the, the everlasting life he can grant now, the spiritual awakening that comes with salvation, and our eternal life in heaven with him, we need to be defining our life as Christ. We need to be rooted in this testimony that we are only saved because of his work on the cross, that he is our very life. And we need to cling to him. But, believer, there are two states you can end up in if you forget this, and we all forget it. You either go to despair, like he said, or you go to arrogance. And I want to caution everyone here, that that's the litmus test. If you find yourself spinning out wrestling in your heart, wondering if you're saved, preach the cross to yourself again. If you find yourself going weeks and months without giving God a second thought because you think you've got it covered, you're in danger. That means you're, you're going down the wrong path. You're believing the wrong thing. We need to be rooted in our salvation and that it's only Christ. He is our very life. It's so easy for us to deceive ourselves into falsehoods. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, that we could suppress the truth, reject the truth, but we could even modify the truth and say, yeah, I believe Jesus died on a cross, but I might not cling to that cross for my salvation, for my life. If we draw near to him, he's faithful to remind us of what he's done. We could live a life of remembering his sacrifice for us. The cross is the mechanism by which Christ brought together his kingdom and According to John, it is a kingdom of resurrection. It is a kingdom of life. And were it not for Christ dying for our sins, Jesus could not tell this man to come. So here's the challenge for the church today. We need to define life as Christ. We need to be rooted and transformed by our Savior's work on that cross. Jesus is life for us. His cross is life for us. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, The Son of God and the Son of Man is the only name in all of heaven and earth that brings life. He's the only one that has authority to raise the dead and bring judgment and to give newness of life. And I hope that we can leave today in thankfulness that his perfect justice was poured out on that cross. That through Jesus we have everlasting life here and now and throughout eternity. So I want to close in prayer. Uh, But before I do, I just want to extend an invitation. God's put this on my heart. If you're in that place of despair today, if you've been spinning out, um, wrestling with the Lord, wondering about your salvation, wondering where you stand with God, know that God loves you. But please come up and get prayer. I would love to pray over you to be rooted in that knowledge of the Son of God, of what he did on the cross for us. And if there are any skeptics in the room, maybe we've talked about some stuff today and you've never Put your faith and trust in Christ. I would love to pray with you as well. Let's pray today, church. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for this amazing testimony of the cross. 
Jesus says, you're, as you're speaking to these religious leaders in John chapter 5, you know where you're going. You know that you're going to complete the work that needs to be done in order to pave the way for new life for us. You have life in and of yourself, and you bring it forth. So today, Father, we ask that you would remind us to cling to you for life, that you would bring that life bubbling up in our spirit through your Holy Spirit inside of us, God, that we would experience the everlasting life of Christ, to be transformed, to be a new creation, God, not one that is defined by our sin and our our shortcomings, God, but one that is defined by your amazing love for us. And while we were still sinners, you died for us, Lord. We thank you for this truth. We want to be rooted in it, Lord. We just reject um, falsehoods that creep up, God, that we could trick ourselves into thinking we have to earn our salvation. We know that it is only because the man on the middle cross said we could come because you showed your love on that cross for the whole world. We thank you and praise you for this profound truth. We just ask that you would encourage us as we go today. Lift us up. Fill us with your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.